Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The United States is the only country in the world where property rights give landowners the exclusive right to lease their subsurface uh, surface mineral estates to petroleum companies. And that's led to the increasing use of the hydraulic form of extraction of shale oil and gas, commonly known as fracking, despite the health problems and environmental damage it causes. Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, the latest book by Colin Jeromack, an environmental studies professor at NYU, explores what happens when Americans of all political stripes are forced by circumstances to reconsider their beliefs about their land, their neighbors, and their government. It's published by Princeton University Press and brings Professor Jeromack to our show now. Welcome. Hi, thanks for being here. Longtime listening. listener. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's great to have you because this is a fascinating topic. What makes shale oil and gas such a valued commodity? Is it different than other oil and gas reserves? No, it's not, Leonard. Uh, it's actually, I mean, it's it's the same substance. It's that, uh, you know, if you think about if you think about the past several decades, there's been a lot of anxiety around peak oil, and you know, in the early 2000s, it looked like, in addition to environmental concerns, that uh, you know, we were going to be running out of this stuff soon. And what happened really is just the technological shift. Uh, this oil and gas is that's called shale gas and shale oils because it's trapped deep underground in these strata of shale and traditional drilling methods couldn't get at it. So it was only when we introduced this technique of horizontal drilling. So you drill down to the shale and drill horizontally through it. And then you hydraulically fracture the rock by shooting through this water at, at high pressure that we were able to get this oil and gas out. So it's not that it, it's different in its value, it's just that it's opened up vast new reserves of oil and gas, which have the potential to uh, keep us going on this stuff no matter the harm it does to the environment for decades. And shale is soft, finely stratified sedimentary rock. Uh, wherever you find it, uh, is it usually rich in oil and gas? Uh, not everywhere, no, but but in in uh in there, and there are parts of even 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 the layers in in North America where 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 uh, oil and gas is in some of the strata of shale. It's not in other parts, but in many parts of the United States, uh, Pennsylvania in particular, and New York. Although there's a ban on fracking in New York, but the so-called Marcellus Shale region, uh, the whole thing is laced with gas, and it's some of the most valuable or it's the biggest, uh, one of the biggest gas fields and most valuable gas fields in the world. And ironically, even though New York has banned the, uh, uh, the drilling of shale, it, um, the, the, some of the, the fracked oil and gas is sent to a New York facility in the Hudson Valley for processing in Dover Plains. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and actually, um, in addition to that, there's, a, there's, there's more. There's other pipelines, like a pipeline that they are... Uh, that's worming its way through Brooklyn right now that, uh, you know, is delivering fracked gas to, to many parts of New York City and other parts. So New York State, uh, you know, heats a lot of homes through shale gas. And that gas, a lot of it is coming from Pennsylvania. Where does the word fracking come from? Uh, and when did uh, fracking begin? You know, fracking, I only laugh because, uh, you know, to many people, fracking sounds like a curse word. Yeah. And it's kind of become a pejorative word. Uh, fracking was originally industry slang for hydraulic fracturing, right? So fracturing mm -hmm. becomes fracking. Um, and that's the process by which 
you you drill horizontally through the shell layer and then uh, once you've done that, you drop down these depth charges, basically, which explode ball bearings through the shale rock to put cracks into it. And then you inject at incredibly high pressure, millions of gallons of mostly water, but also with sand, which props up the cracks that you've created and some chemical lubricants. And that's what allows the shale gas and oil to flow back out. So it's an industry term. And uh, we've been, you know, we haven't been fracking that long. I mean, it really took off in the early 2000s. I mean, certainly there had been experiments in hydraulic fracturing uh, for decades before that. And that's a lot of times the industry will say that fracking isn't new. And that's correct in the sense that this technology has existed for decades, but it's not been used on a vast scale until it was combined with, with horizontal drilling. And so that really took off in the early to mid 2000s. And it's often portrayed as an energy revolution that will transform the American economy and, and geopolitics, at least uh, by its defenders. Is that because it frees us from relying on foreign oil and, and gas? Yes, in theory. And I say, I say in theory because, you know, oil and gas are a commodity like anything else. And so even though it's being taken out of the ground here, if there's better markets for it elsewhere, it will be and it is being shipped out. Uh, but yes, the, the idea is that, you know, we were dependent on foreign oil and, and, and some people even arguing that this was part of the impetus to get involved in things like the Iraq war. And uh, so, so the idea was, you know, now we, now we, don't, we don't have to import uh, oil and gas and we can even export it. It also, you know, Europe can look to us for fracked gas rather than having to look to Gazprom in Russia. And so, so that's, that's been the promise so much so that even, uh, Energy Secretary Perry under the Trump administration called uh, fracked gas molecule, molecules of U.S. freedom. <laughs> but we've also heard about uh, the, uh, the damage that methane can cause. And isn't there methane damage in the process, methane leakage in the process? Yes. Yeah, so, so just to be clear uh, for listeners, methane is natural gas. So, so mm -hmm. the methane gas that's being taken out uh. that we call natural gas is the primary component that we are extracting and using for fuel. Uh, methane is itself a greenhouse gas. We usually talk about carbon emissions. Methane itself is another greenhouse gas. And although it stays in the atmosphere for a shorter period of time, when it is in the atmosphere, its potency is much greater than, 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 uh, than carbon emissions. And so methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. And you know it's leaked. it can be leaked out at many stages in the process. A lot of times when a gas well is first drilled, there can be methane released. Uh, a lot of old wells that have been abandoned, they call them orphan wells, are leaking methane. And uh, when, you know, a lot of times, so pipelines are hooked up to these things called compressor stations, which pressurize the gas to send it through uh, longer, longer distance pipelines. And compressor stations sometimes will emit methane. And so we really don't know how much methane is being leaked because especially under Trump, there was uh, a lot of rollback on emissions monitoring of mm -hmm. methane. You looked at the impact of fracking uh, by living for eight months in a rural, uh, rural communities in, in Lycoming County, Pennsylvania, outside of Williamsport. Uh, and that sits a, atop the Marcellus Shale. Yeah, uh, that's right. Now, Marcellus Shale is very rich in, uh, in oil and natural gas. Four trillion cubic feet of natural gas, it's estimated to hold. Yes, the Marcellus Shale is, is, is the largest gas field in America and one of the largest in the world. Doesn't the title of your book refer to early American laws that extended property rights 
up to heaven and down to hell? That's right. So this this is actually a clause that is that has been found in common law handed down from Britain and not only to the United States, but you'll find a clause something like this, whoever owns the soil, it is theirs up to heaven and down to hell. In many of the other Commonwealth countries that are, you know, that that orig that were originally British colonies, like Canada, for instance. But but in all of those other countries, that right has been eroded or has not been recognized in practice. So in in in, in England, for instance, people own the mineral rights, but the, the crown retains access to all of the most prized minerals, gold, silver, mm -hmm. gas, and oil. And so in that sense, then you don't really own down to hell. Uh, but in America, it's the only country where this is actually common. Other countries have small, uh, you know, there can be longtime landowners that, that were able to get that grandfathered in where they own mineral rights. But in America, two thirds of all owned land has the mineral rights attached to it. And almost all that other third is federally owned public land. And so, and so, of course, air rights were restricted after plane travel, but originally the clause was up to heaven and down to hell. And in America, mm -hmm. for most landowners, it's called freehold title. If you have a freehold title, it, it is all the way down to the mantle of the earth. So that's led to poor regulation of the fracking industry by the U.S. government, because it's really uh, the property owners who are the only ones can, involved in it. Uh, and and that doesn't and it, it doesn't matter what health problems and environmental damage it may cause. The government still can't say anything. Well, that's not that's not quite it. The government can say something, but but you're you are correct that property rights, I argue, inhibit regulation. So starting at the top, uh, you know, the fracking is could be and should be regulated by the federal government. But the reason why the federal government tends not to be involved. Part of it is just our federalist system where, the, where there's been a decision to devolve much of regulations to the state. The other thing with the famous or uh, infamous Halliburton loophole, uh, you know, Dick Cheney, when he became vice president, he was previously the CEO of Halliburton, which is one of the largest oil field services companies in the world. And he was able to pass, to slip into the Energy Act that uh, fracking was exempt from the Safe Drinking Water Act. And that would have oh been the primary mechanism by which the Environmental Protection Agency regulated things like, for instance, injection wells, where, where fracking wastewater is buried deep underground. That's what is primarily considered to be causing earthquakes, not so much fracking itself, but these injection wells. So now you have it at the level of the state. And there, there, of course, every state has a regulatory body in Pennsylvania. It's the Environmental Protection Agency that is supposed to ensure that, you know, the health and safety of, 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 of this enterprise. And so there are these regulatory bodies. But for instance, in Pennsylvania, even last year, the, a, a, the, the district attorney convened a grand jury to investigate the Department of Environmental Protection because they were and the grand jury found the DEP to be so lax in its enforcement of the industry that the grand jury recommended uh, giving some authority to, to criminally prosecute and regulate the industry to the attorney general himself. And so there are those regulatory bodies, but, but where specifically we see that, 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 on, that it comes down to property owners is one of the things that happen in most states that are drilling a lot of oil and gas like Pennsylvania and Texas and Colorado is they, they have suspended towns and municipalities' ability to control fracking locally through zoning. So if you think a lot of towns have zoning and zoning is the primary mechanism that you would use to control the industry on the local level, a town may say, this area is zoned rural or residential, and so we're not going to allow industrial processes in those areas. But Pennsylvania, as did most of the other oil and gas producing states, created a preemption where they said only the state 
can set, you know, the state controls regulations regarding fracking. And as long as a oil or gas well is not, for instance, within a thousand feet of the nearest water source, it must be allowed in all zones, including residential and agricultural zones. So now that would have been the mechanism by which at the local level, you can imagine communities saying, I don't want my neighbor to be able to lease their land for drilling. You can't say that. And so so the process of signing a lease is just up to the individual. There's no public input into that. There are permitting hearings when a new well is going to be drilled. There is a public permit hearing where people can voice their concerns. But in Pennsylvania, those hearings were basically rubber stamps. And the one time that I followed where a municipality denied a gas permit, they were sued by the industry and it was overturned on appeal. And so the township had to allow the lease in the end. Environmentalists and some Democratic politicians have been pushing for a national ban on fracking, but isn't President Biden's power limited to only banning fracking on public lands? The, uh, the, the, the vast majority of lease land is privately held, isn't it? That's right. You're, you're, you're exactly correct, Leonard. And that was something of, you know, in a way, it, during the presidential election, you know, the right wanted to pin Biden as saying he's going to ban fracking. And then Biden, you know, environmentalists were mad because Biden said, I'm not going to ban fracking. I think it worked to his advantage to not say I can't ban fracking because he wanted to find a way to appeal to people in the middle. But but you're totally correct. He can only ban on public land. And really, all it seems he's going to do is ban new oil and gas leases, all existing and all existing oil and gas permits that have been issued will still be allowed to be developed. And that, that applies to less than one third of available land that can be used for fracking in the United States. What was the Trump administration's position on fracking on public lands? Drill, baby, drill. <laughs> uh, they they, they, you know, they seem to be opposed up, to promoting up, renewable uh, energy at the same time. <laughs> Yes. No, there was. I, I, I mean, I say that only slightly in jest. That was the famous phrase from from Sarah Palin uh -huh. and some others uh, from some time ago. But, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration really made fracking the fulcrum of, of energy policy and considered, you know, taking any effort they could to open up drilling. I should note that drilling on public land was something that President Obama also took up with relative gusto. So this isn't only a conservative thing until, you know, up until about a decade ago or even less, there was pretty strong bipartisan support of fracking. But the Trump administration opened up a lot of new land for oil and gas drilling, including selling leases for the Arctic National Reserve on those final days in office, shrinking the Bears Ears National Monument, which was newly created by Obama, so that more of that space could be opened up for oil and gas drilling. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, streaming live at WBAI.org, is NYU Environmental Studies professor Colin Jaromack, who's written a book called Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, published by Princeton University Press. Did most of the, the residents you spoke to say that they felt they should be free to do what they wanted with their own property? That's right. So, so you know, Lycoming County is a county that uh, just just to give you one marker of of the political leanings that it went over seventy percent for Donald Trump in both presidential elections, and so it's a quite conservative area. And I would say even for some of the more remotely located rural residents, a libertarian area era. Many people who, you know, are fourth, fifth generation property owners uh, who very much have this pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. Uh, their, their sort of code of living is live and let live. I do what I want, you do what you want. 
I don't bother you, you don't bother me. And so they were uh, very much not fans of government regulation in general and environmental regulation in particular. There was this attitude, it's my land, I can do what I want. And so, uh, so what, I, what I argue in the book is that, yes, fracking brought economic benefits, but it wasn't just that people kind of, you know, uh, bit their tongue and signed the lease, that many people, uh, this was in alignment with their political beliefs. You know, they, they, they believe that their land should be productive. They, they believe that it's my land and I can do what I want. And that if I want to make my land productive and make money off it, I should have the freedom to do so. And no, nobody should be able to tell me that I can't make this decision with my property. So is this another example of the rural-urban divide and the cultural polarization that drives so much of contemporary American politics, uh, including other uh, conflicts like gun rights and vaccine mandates? Yes, you have your finger right on the pulse of it, Leonard. Uh, the, the, and how I talk about this in the book is, uh, you know, there were, there were very few locally uh, situated environmental advocates that were against fracking. There is one local group, the Responsible Drilling Alliance, who's based in Williamsport. But what happened in the time that I was there that really brought this into stark relief was there was a number of incidents where many activists from other places came in to protest. So one famous example was when Yoko Ono and Sean Lennon and Susan Sarandon mm -hmm. brought a bus from New York City through uh, you know parts of Appalachian, Pennsylvania on a tour with journalists to show them you know, how much fracking is damaging uh, the landscape. And, uh, and then another incident that happened was there was well, a trailer. What was the reaction? Well, what was the reaction to Yoko, Sean sure. and such? It was disgust. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, look at, these, look at these people who know nothing about this area, these liberals from the city, you know, who don't know anything about the way that we live or, or energy. And, you know, how are they driving that bus? That bus is driven with, with gasoline. <laughs> yeah. They're probably living in a high rise apartment that's heated with fracked gas from Pennsylvania. We hear the same arguments when uh, there's a debate over oil pipelines. Yes, that's right. Um, and, 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 you know, interesting, one thing I'll point out to, just as a more general thing, I mean, I focus on one community, but if you look at survey research, people that live closer to fracked gas wells and people that live closer to pipelines support them more than people that live farther away. And so, so, so there's this idea, you know, a lot of times we think about people that are protesting pipelines and uh, things like a natural gas well or oil well is not in my backyard activism. And certainly there's some of that. I don't mean to, to caricature the situation, but one of the things that the research shows is that it's more of a not in your backyard movement that, People that are opposed to these things are largely urban-based and coastal-based, and are and are in, you know and are engaging in forms of activism in which they they give money to generate activism in local communities or or sort of bring activists in, um, literally sometimes on buses, and that this you know and this really turned locals off even more so much so that when things started to go wrong for some of them, even though they were upset with the oil and gas industry. They didn't want to go public because they said, you know, I don't want to be seen as one of those as one of those liberal fractivists. And so so very much uh, the, the rural urban divide was on display here. But uh, don't isn't it a fact that some of the, the reddest counties and states suffer the most from pollution uh, and this contributes to that pollution? <laughs> you know, you're Do they exactly not right. see the and irony there. There, there is an irony. And I think, you know, this is an irony that I think has been well explored. I mean, there's the famous book, What's the Matter with Kansas? There's other, there's other, you know, studies, which, which the idea there is that, you know, that, that 
that people who are voting for conservatives seem to be voting against their interests, right? Um, there's the more recent book, Dying of Whiteness, for instance. Um, and I think what I would say about that is there is an irony. I don't want to, I don't want to insinuate at all that people that, that act this way are somehow duped. They've, I think it's a very conscious choice to, to prioritize certain values over other things. And so, you know, I think people very, so much value land sovereignty and, 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 and live and let live and being left to themselves that even when things went wrong, it wasn't that they just, they just, they just said, you know, um, I don't, I'm not going to do anything. It wasn't that they weren't upset. The few families I followed that wanted with contaminated water were very angry. Their answer was to sue the, the company that contaminated their water. So it's, it wasn't that they, they, they didn't care or they didn't, but, but they, even then their approach was, well, I was wronged in the contract that I signed. And, and, and so I want to make things right through the legal system, but not that the answer would be greater regulation. Lycoming County is a Rust Belt area. Had it been in economic decline before the oil companies arrived? That's right. I, I mean, I don't want to paint too bleak of a picture. It has fared better than some others because there are two colleges located there. Uh, there's a there's a there's one hospital right in Williamsport, another one outside that that provides some jobs. But nonetheless, this and there's some local manufacturing. But this is a place that has seen its population decline by more than a third. Between what farms, what happened today. to the farms? Yeah, so many of the farms. I mean, this basically, the, you know, dairy and meat are the are the basic. There's not a lot of people growing food here, and uh, and and those farms, a lot of them disappeared. There are still people doing it, but there's not really money to be made doing that, especially you know compared to the the, the large uh, agricultural actors. And so, a lot of the folks I met, for instance, they were they owned land that they inherited that was a farm, but now it's not, or they were farming, but part-time, right? It wasn't, they couldn't actually make a living doing it. So they were doing something else, but still keeping some dairy cows, uh, to, you know, mostly out of pride. So they were eager to accept the huge sums of money that were offered by energy companies. How much money is offered? It varies tremendously. So, so, um, and I should, to, to be clear, there's two primary ways that you get money from when you first lease your land, you get paid a bonus. And then if they do drill underneath your property and extract gas, you get royalties every month from that. As far as the leasing bonus, people that signed early that didn't know uh, that this was going to be a huge thing um, signed for quite little, sometimes as little as $5 an acre. So, so that's not that much money. Uh, people who signed later after the, you know, all the landmen, as they call them, the people that try to get leases started coming to town and rumors started to circulate about all this gas underground. And some people started, some homeowners decided to band together with other landowners and say, let's collectively bargain as a block. Some folks got as much as $5,000 per acre. Uh, so that's the bonus. And then uh, royalties, you know, it really depends how much you own. I'll, I'll, to put it in perspective uh, or I'll, I'll give you one example. So one of the main characters of the book, George Hagemeyer, he leased for very little. He had, he had 77 acres. He only leased for $5 an acre. So he didn't make that much money doing that. But then they you, wanted you to You opened the book with him. him. And what's that? You opened the book with him. Yeah. With his story. Because he's, he's typical? He's, you know, I, it's really tough to say typical. I call it the fracking lottery because there are people that just got a bonus and got nothing afterwards. And then there's people that get a lot of money off of royalties and there's people in the middle. I would say he's on the upper end, uh, you know, uh, of people that I met as far as life changing amounts of money. Um, so, but he's not, he's not, he's not so atypical. There are others like him. 
Um, so he leased, he leased for set for, for $5 an acre. However, then the gas company wanted to put a pipeline, bury a pipeline underneath his property. He got $60,000 for that. And then once they started drilling the gas, they put six gas wells in his backyard. His first royalty check, which was just for one month of production, was $33,000 for one month. I could see why he appreciated that. Um, yeah. But you, you, you talked with people on all sides of the issue of fracking in the area. Were you surprised by the wide and sometimes contradictory positions that they took? I was. So the first thing I should say is I was surprised at how many people supported it. You know, I had this idea. You never know what you're going to find. But I, I imagined when I moved there that the book was going to be how fracking split this town in half. And that wasn't the case. Almost everybody supported it. So that was the first surprise. But then the second surprise was, was uh, you know, uh, is in the details. So, so I, I, I spend time with one person, for instance, Cindy Bauer, who is against fracking. She's a member of the Responsible Drilling Alliance, which is an anti-fracking advocacy group. She's, she was also involved in a lawsuit trying to prevent the distribution of royalties from drilling on state land going to the general fund. And she argued that they should be going back into conservation. Uh, and she also had a fair, has a fair amount of money. She's uh, she's definitely upper class, and so didn't need mm. the money from leasing. And uh, she didn't she refused to lease her land. She she owns 150 acres, her and her husband. But eventually, she did lease, and that was another that was a big surprise. Here is somebody who who doesn't need the money from leasing. Here is somebody who is who wishes that fracking would go away, but in the end, she leased. And there was a really valuable lesson in that, which is that. You know, she refused the lease for years and it didn't change anything. Everybody around her leased, everybody else almost in the entire county leased. So she was still dealing with the, the, the well pad right across the street from her where drilling was going on, the road being chewed up, uh, light pollution, noise pollution, caravans of big rig trucks. So finally, she just basically said, well, I deserve something for the quality of life disturbances and suffering that I've had to endure for years. And so she finally gave up and leased and really just viewed it as like as recompense, as a form of reparation for the harm that had been done. And that was another surprise. The last surprise I'll say, which actually gets to the gentleman we were just discussing, is George Hagemeyer. Uh, I brought him to my class in a stretch and he decided to take a stretch limousine because he was you know, newly flushing mm -hmm. money. And I had brought him to talk about uh, as someone who supports fracking. I actually brought in somebody else, Ralph Kisberg, who's a co-founder of the Responsible Drilling Alliance. And the idea was Ralph was going to give the anti-fracking view and George was going to give the, the pro-fracking view. And then he said in front of my whole class, I wish I didn't sign. So that was another surprise. Well, you mentioned that he has uh, to share space with security guard shack, with uh, right. portable toilets for the, the people who work these rigs, uh, the, the caravans of big rigs, the drilling equipment, the earth movers. This was once a beautiful area. Uh, and now isn't it largely um, pretty ugly to look at? That's right. You know, yes. And, and this, this precisely feeds into his regret. I mean, acre wise, most of his land is untouched. I mean, he owns 77 acres. Most of it is wooded. The well pad itself is about four acres. And then there's a, a driveway, a gravel driveway that they carved through to it. But visually, that's right where his house is. And so, so, so yes, what happened was, I think what I say is George didn't realize how much sovereignty he would be giving up to the oil and gas company. So he had no control where they put the driveway. So they put this gravel driveway right next to his house where there's big rig trucks rumbling by each day. They put a security camera on his well pad that he didn't know about. 
And then when the security camera recorded him walking on the well pad, he was told that he wasn't allowed on the well pad and that he could be arrested because the well pad is owned by the oil and gas company. He didn't his know own property. that they were going to withdraw millions of gallons of water from his creek until he saw a notice in the classified section of the newspaper. You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Headaches, blackouts, and nosebleeds. Jack poison and all this greed We lived our lives without fear Before the drilling rigs got here Darkness coming, I can't feel it in my bones Man comes with a pocket full of gold I got mules to shoe and I got mouths to feed A woman to hold and dirt to seed Before I get back to my conversation with Professor Colin Jarlmack, um, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We need all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to help keep this show and the station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. We can't just drill below uh, the uh, the station uh, and uh, and get some oil or gas. We really need your support. Uh, again, that number is 212-209-2950. Or you can go to give2wbai.org online. And a great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town, by my guest, Colin Gerald Mack. But no matter what level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is to take that step to keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 212-209-2950 or going online uh, to give to WBAI.org. Because, you know, our listeners are our only source of funding. So the only way we can keep independent radio alive on the new york radio dial is with the help of listeners like you and and we need your support now more than ever so i hope you'll go to your phone or computer and make that tax deductible donation right now but please don't forget to make the contribution in the name of leonard lopate at large and um, we return now to my guest uh, colin charlmack i'm pronouncing your name correctly um his book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town, published by Princeton University Press. Um, even if you don't lease your land, uh, your neighbors uh, will, will lease, which means that 
you're going to suffer from the environmental cost no matter what. So isn't it just smart smarter to to uh, to join them? Yes, Leonard. Unfortunately, that it is, and 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 this is you know people. Uh, People who write about environmental problems, uh, you know, the the exploitation of scarce resources, they you know they talk about this as a collect as a as a as a classic collective action problem or resource dilemma, where, you know, people can understand as a whole that gee, if all of us leased our land, you know, we might lose the rural character of this place. We might risk some aspects of of landscape destruction, destruction, or even water contamination, but. If there's no mechanism uh, to prevent, you know, everybody from from signing individually, so I can decide. Just as you said, so if I, it makes no sense for me to hold back as an individual landowner because I recognize that even if I don't, everybody else will. So I might as well make some money, even if I have an understanding that all of us leasing might might create these environmental problems. And what do they say to environmental activists who point to the dangers of? fracking to drinking water in poison wells to destroyed roads to noise pollution local air pollution uh, the air pollution because it releases carcinogens into people's backyards yes you know this is where i mean it's as regards to what 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 do they say i mean it's really maybe what do they say to each other or to me because there's really almost no conversation happening between environmentalists and landowners unfortunately i think i think there's this there's this, uh, well, it's interesting because, so for instance, a couple people that I came to know who wound up with, with their, their water became laced with methane, they were angry with the oil and gas company, but they, they would say things, in some ways I was surprised that not all of them, but some of them would even minimize it or say things like, well, you know, the water around here is, we're all dr drilling our own water wells and, you know, we know no, there's all kinds of issues with the water around here. And so if it's not this, it could be something else. That's what some people said, which surprised yeah. me. Um, and other people just said, you know, as, as I alluded to before, well, I'm upset with what's happening, but I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to, um, I think lawsuits are the answer, not, not, not greater regulation. I think, I think the thing that, so another, I think a thing that a lot of them said was they felt that uh, environmentalists exaggerated the problem. So, you know, in famously in 2010, the film Gasland showed flaming faucets, you know, because there was so much methane in them that you could light them on fire. This stoked the, what became the predominant narrative, which is that fracking is going to poison our aquifers. And the truth of the matter is, uh, and this is no, this is cold comfort to the people who have wound up with their water wells being undrinkable, but there's not been major contamination of aquifers that provide water for thousands or millions of people. There have been numerous individual cases. As I mentioned, I followed one group of six families who lived on a road um, who, who wound up with, with explosive levels of methane in their water. But the, but the, but the, the sort of doomsday narrative of environmentalists did not really come to pass in most places. And so I think in some ways the, the and not all environmentalists were so catastrophic or hyperbolic in their narratives, but a lot of them were. And I think that might've been to their detriment because it was easy for people living here to say, oh, they say everybody's gonna have cancer and they say that none of us are gonna be able to drink our water and we haven't seen that. And so that sort of allowed them to dismiss all of the claims made by environmentalists, even though a number of the claims made by environmentalists are so-called fractivists, anti-fracking activists, mm -hmm. had a lot of merit to them. Isn't there also a sense of community involved here? Don't many uh, support uh, land leasing, even if they themselves don't make money from it because, well, because of their political belief and self-reliance and land sovereignty, but also because 
they are defending the freedom of their neighbors to lease. And they believe that supporting fracking is a matter of standing, standing up or standing with your neighbors. That's right. And that was, you know, that was, I have to say, that was more, one of the more surprising things that I found. I, I presume that, um, you know, I wasn't surprised that people would support fracking because they make money. Uh, it, it was interesting how it was interesting how much partisan identity mattered as well, although not as surprising, but, you know, people who are pro free market anti-regulation supported on political grounds, but because people often talked about themselves in this, you know, as in the singular, like I do what I want, you know, they often talked about themselves as if they were these rugged people living in the mountains who had no social connections. The community part surprised me, um, you know, and I, and I tell this story through some particular people. So for instance, uh, Tom and Mary Crawley, who were one of the families that wound up with contaminated water, when that happened, they were trying to get their local representative to to uh, make you know to to hold the gas company accountable, uh, to talk to the Department of Environmental Protection, and they were very frustrated. But they at a and this spilled over at a town hall meeting. But when the local reporter went up to talk to them afterwards, they refused to give their name or share their story. They wouldn't talk to me for seven months. It took me before they would talk to me. And when I finally sat down with them, what they said was, even though we're dealing with all this, we're really worried. We saw those protesters. We saw people camping out, you know, uh, like picketing uh, gas wells and the like. And we're really worried that our neighbor's property who hosts the gas well, that environmentalists are going to show up and harass them or protest there. And it's not our neighbor's fault. It's the gas company's fault. And so here they were with contaminated water. They couldn't afford a lawyer. There was an environmental group that was offering them a free lawyer, but they didn't want to take it. And they didn't want to talk to the environmental group or share their story because that's how concerned they were with their neighbors being, uh, you know, in their view, being harassed. And, and, and so, so I say that, you know, I say, I say precisely that, that uh, part of showing public support for fracking, even when you've lost the fracking lottery, is that you're standing with the community. And they also would point to, they said, well, you know, our neighbors were able to keep their farm. They were going to sell it and now they got to keep it. So it didn't work out for me, but it worked out for them. And I don't want to do something that would negatively harm their ability to hold on to their farm. They're kind of, um, these people value personal freedom and property rights and are cynical uh, of, of state and federal government. But they also believe in uh, working for the Civic Association for the betterment of the local community. Again, right. another contradiction, it seems to me. You're, you're precisely right. And, you know, what really what really made that clear to me was uh, I, I went to a lot of uh, board of supervisor hearings in small townships. These are basically where new land use uh, proposals are debated. Uh, people can come who live in the township and express concerns. And then the board of supervisors makes the decision. Um, you know, for instance, it might be whether a bakery is going to be allowed in a part of the area that is zoned, at, you know, residential or, or agricultural. And one of the things that I was very impressed by was how much people would turn out to these to these tiny little hearings and would when would argue for or against, in effect, restricting somebody's property rights for the public good. You know, they would say so and so shouldn't be able to put a cell phone tower on the property because here's the impact it's going to have. We can't have another liquor license for this new restaurant because that's too many potential drunk drivers on the road. And so I saw the people were very involved and specifically interest, ironically, given their the, the way they thought about property rights as being so sacrosanct that they that they often debated that certain land uses ought not happen, uh, ought not be allowed by the Board of Supervisors precisely because they would uh, damage the public good. 
And the thing about fracking is fracking didn't apply, as I already mentioned, to these local zoning rules. And so fracking was not something where they could where they could have the same public input into. And so so that's where I think that I, I argue in the book that I do think that if municipalities had the ability to control fracking through zoning locally, that even though people may be pro industry and pro property rights, you would see greater restrictions and regulations at the local level, because I saw people doing this for other things. They valued the rural character of the area they lived in and did not want it to be industrialized. But it, there is a process of deforestation. You have to knock down trees to clear land so you can do the drilling. That's right. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, this, this isn't exactly in your question, but where you see that quite a bit not just, you know, not just small segments of maybe somebody's backyard is Pennsylvania has leased hundreds of thousands of acres of state forest for drilling. And uh, I spent some time in some of those forests and, and, you know, you, you know, there are areas, there are areas, you know, Tyodotton forest has dozens of oil and gas wells and every single one of them has a four acre clearance. And then the impoundment ponds where they store the water that they use to frack the wells are 12 acres and they have several of those. And then they clear areas for pipelines. And even though the pipeline's only six inches, they clear 125 foot right of way that remains grass. And so you're right, it does lead to significant deforestation. So this is also, so the state also leases land uh, to increase the state budget? That's right. There's currently a moratorium on new leases, but uh, when the fracking boom first took off, uh, Ed Rendell, who was the Democratic governor between 2008 and 2010, leased almost 140,000 acres. And that was in addition to earlier leases that had occurred. And uh, those, th that, those leases between 2008 and 2010 brought in over $400 million. Uh, so, you know, that plugs a lot of state budget holes. Now, you mentioned uh, opposition to cell phone towers. Isn't it in the best interest to have a cell phone tower? Yes, that's that's true. And, and I should just be clear, Leonard, I, I don't want to paint the picture that there's like massive opposition to all cell phone towers. It's just to, but to point out that I did, I, I did attend a hearing mm -hmm. where there was debate about whether a cell phone tower ought to be allowed because people argued about their own property value or their own view shed. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, people still want cell phone towers. They want to have the main thing I would say about that is like anything else is people want to be able to have a say in, in land use decisions that affect them. And so if you feel that you're going to be personally affected by this, you want to at least be able to express your concerns and perhaps have an opportunity for these things to, to get developed in a way that lessens their impact on you. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org is Colin Jarlmack, a professor of environmental studies and sociology at NYU. Uh, his previous book, The Global Pigeon, the one we're discussing, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom and Community in an American Town. It's published by Princeton University Press. What do you, what do they, how do they respond when you bring up the issue of climate change? Um, largely, I, 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 I mean, certainly some concern. I mean, again, I did follow some people who were against drilling fracking and very much pitched it in terms of climate change. But I would say, if not denial, apathy, it, climate change is not a top priority for many of the folks that I met. Um, you know, folks thought that it was, you know, I, I didn't mean, I wouldn't say I met so many people that refused to believe it was happening, but felt that it was, uh, you know, but did feel that, that the, 
the language of, of, you know, the doomsday scenarios were overblown and, and, you know, and we really just say, we got a lot of other things to worry about. We got to, you know, we got to try to stay out of wars in the Middle East, which developing this resource helps us do gas burns cleaner than coal. So even for this, it's a, it's, you know, you could argue it's better for, for climate change. Uh, and a lot of people just said, look, we're in an area that doesn't have a lot of money. We've seen decline of industries and jobs and decline of population. And so we got to put food on the table and try to keep our kids in the community. And so that's our priority. That's our bread and butter. There really wasn't, I did bring it up to people, but it really wasn't even something that was on their radar. They just had a lot of concerns that were a lot more palpable to them than that. Do you think you would have pretty much seen the same thing if you'd gone to some of the other areas where fracking is taking place? I do. I, you know, I always hesitate to, to characterize huge stretches of, of America, but I do know I, I would rely here on. Um, I mean, certainly we know from survey dirt data that if you are if you identify as conservative or Republican, you are much less likely to believe that climate change is real or that it's being caused by people. And the thing about fracking, and this is a pure coincidence of geology, but almost all of the oil and gas reserves are located in the heartland, stretching from Pennsylvania to the Midwest. And so almost all the major areas where oil and gas drilling are occurring are in conservative areas. And so that's where I would say that I do think that you would tend to find this kind of response in many of the places where oil and gas drilling is occurring. What does fracking's prevalence tell us about the broader environmental movement in America? Uh, I think, I think uh, the you know I think in some ways the the limits of 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 what can be done through the federal government because I mean as we've as we talked about at the top of your show, Leonard, you, you know Biden can't actually ban fracking if he wanted to. I mean through congressional action you could. It's hard for me to ever imagine that would happen. Uh, but not with but, this Congress. Right. Um, and so so I think that you know the thing about fracking is where you are seeing winning is at the local level. So as 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 I mentioned and as you well know, the state of New York has banned fracking in New York State. There are certain municipalities in areas of Texas and Colorado who have fought locally, who have fought permits for oil and gas wells. Even sometimes they're being sued by the state because they're not allowed to stop these things, but they're still doing them. And so I would just say where you're seeing success and where I would like to see environmentalism focus more of their energy is on these local fights, um, because fracking is not really going to be. Uh, I don't see it being taken down in, in, you know, in sort of a flick of a switch by the federal government. There are going to be dozens or hundreds of these local fights. And I think there, part of, part of what the environmental movement, I think, needs to try to do a little bit more, I talk about this in the conclusion of my book, is think about ways of crafting a message that appeals to many of the local conservative residents living here. So a lot of the folks I met, they didn't want gas wells drilled so close to water wells. They didn't want hundreds of big rig trucks on the roads when, it, when you could pipe the water in on a temporary pipeline next to the road instead. So it's to say they wanted certain things changed, but to them, environmentalists were, oh, you know, their emphasis was on top-down regulation from the federal or the state level, not the community playing a role in making decisions. So, so what I found is, you know, folks may even want and support local regular environmental regulation even if they're conservative but it has to be something that they play a part in crafting and so i would like to see an environmentalism that is more attuned to the role of local movements and local control over resources 
You said earlier that the history behind the Founding Fathers' decision to grant whoever owns the soil to own it up to heaven and down to hell um, was inspired by uh, things like uh, John Locke's Declaration of Private Property as a natural right. Uh, and and so it's really, really a, a British idea. But uh, is one of the big differences that in England, the crown retained exclusive rights to all subsurface oil, gas, coal, silver, and gold? That's right. And so this was something that, you know, the, the so-called founding fathers, this was an explicit decision when independence was won. You know, they're, they're, they were obsessed with preventing the federal government from, you know, the tyranny of government, right? Preventing the government from being able to control people's private decisions. Um, and so one of the things that they were very adamant about was finding ways to ensure that people could enjoy the fruits of their own labor. And so they recognized that if, you know, if, that if people, you know, that people would be beholden to the government, if it was up to the government to decide whether to drill underneath your property to get out the oil and gas, and that if individuals own the property and that they either labored through mining themselves or they hired somebody privately to mine it, that it ought to be their right to enjoy the fruits of their labor, which was explicitly in Lockean. John Locke said, land only attains value when it is transformed through labor. And so whoever owns the property, whoever transforms land through labor owns, should own the results of that labor. And so this was a very conscious choice to break with Britain. And, 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 and they worried that, that allowing the federal government to retain mineral rights would be allowing the federal government to control the individual. Is it your sense that uh, despite its destructive aspects that fracking is going to be with us for quite a while? Yes, yes, unfortunately. I mean, I, I do I do think I, I certainly have more reason for optimism with the current administration than I've had before. Um, you know, but there's as, as it's been well talked about in the news, there's only so much that can be done through executive actions. And it's hard to to think that there's going to be the support uh, to, you know, to 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 simply ban fracking. And there's enough oil and gas to keep this thing going for a long time. I think the biggest hope that you see environmentalists and progressives talking about is a so-called clean energy standard, which would still have to pass Congress. And that's that's where it gets tough. But a clean energy standard would not ban fracking itself, but it, it would mandate that by a given year, whether that's 2035, there, we will have net zero emissions from our energy sector. And so if something like a clean energy standard passes, then which I think is a high bar, but if it did, we would see the decline of fracking. But uh, I think it's going to be with us for a while. Is it inexpensive in comparison to some of the other ways we get our energy? It's, no, it's not. And, and I, I should say, it, it, you know, a lot, of, a lot of wells that are drilled lose money. Um, mm. the, the, you know, one of the things that, that I remember there was a Bloomberg news report that, that argued that, that, you know, fracking has always sort of been a losing game that, that basically it costs so much to drill these wells and some of them are super productive. So the ones that are quite productive, you make money off of, but a lot of them you lose money off of. And so you need to keep drilling. You need to keep drilling in hopes of striking the next jackpot. Fracking is incredibly expensive enterprise. Um, but however, we are producing so much of this stuff now, especially gas, that there's a glut. Uh, there's such a glut of gas that the price has gone, you know, at times it fluctuates so low that some of the wells that have been drilled are capped. Uh, we don't want the gas going to market. 
because there's, you know, there's, there's not a market for it. And it's, it's losing money that way because it costs so much to drill it, but there's still so much of it that the price isn't where the industry would like it to be a lot of the time. Although gas prices have gone up in all of the, uh, the gas stations in my area, uh, they're rather high now. They're in the $3 range. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on our show. I've been speaking with Colin Jarlmack, who is Professor of Environmental Studies and Sociology at NYU. His latest book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking Freedom and Community in an American Town, published by Princeton University Press. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. This has been a lot of fun, Leonard. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm sad to say that brings us to the end of this show. My special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lynch, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to comment on a show or just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to step up right now and support Leonard Lopate at large so that we can keep bringing you the informative, in-depth interviews you've come to expect from us. So please go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 to help keep Leonard Lopate at large and WBAI on the air. And one great way to support us without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. They're listeners who contribute $10, $15, $20 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. As I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in American Town by my guest Colin Jarlmack. Our way of saying thanks, but to get it, you must make that call right now. One last time, the number 212-209-2950, or you can go to go online to give to WBAI.org. And please make your contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And, and thanks. We hope you'll join us on Monday when prison reform advocate Marlon Peterson will discuss his recent memoir, Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song. You won't want to miss it. Have a great weekend.